I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Sometimes I find myself wondering what is going on behind the scenes in my head when I'm selecting cases for the show. It seems like without intending to, my cases have some kind of connection resembling the six degrees of Kevin Bacon or something. Everyone knows that what that is, right? You guys know what that I is? I think so. The younger folks might not. All right, I'll explain what it is. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, or Bacon's Law, is essentially a game where you try to connect a random celebrity to Kevin Bacon. You have six chances, or degrees, to connect them. You do this by connecting one actor to another actor by way of a movie that they were both in. So if I say a name like uh, Josh Hartnett, my true love, I need to figure out the shortest path to connect him to Kevin Bacon. So I might say something like this. Josh Hartnett was in Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck was in The Sum of All Fears with Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman was in Robin Hood with Kevin Costner. And Kevin Costner was in JFK with Kevin Bacon. We should probably play that later, but I know Josh will annihilate us because he's a savant when it comes to movies. My friend Jen and I, we have a version where if there's like four of us at a table, we all at the same time say an actor and then we have to go around and connect it around the table. I think I've played that with you guys and it was very hard but really fun. So why I bring this up is I tend to pick a handful of cases that are oddly related in some way. And I know this has happened to you as well. Like the time you interviewed a witness in one episode Mm -hmm. and realized he was related to a victim in another episode. Last week, I covered Belle Gunness on Patreon because she came up in our X Marks the Spot episode due to some case similarities. And after all of that hog research, I found myself really wanting to do another hog story. But I decided to table that for a few weeks and let people recover. So I decided to pick another case that happened at a campsite. You know, summer camping, it's kind of on trend. I picked a case that I had a lot of interest in learning more about. And lo and behold, it happened less than an hour away from the Susan Monica farm, like my own mini version of Six Degrees. Today's case shows you how an average American family can have dark secrets behind closed doors. A couple once totally in love can turn on each other for lust or money or to avoid the inconvenience that breaking up can inflict. What exactly can make someone turn from committing to spending the rest of their life with someone to plotting to commit the murder of that same person? How can one person be totally in love only to find out that the object of their affection wants them dead? This is the story of Michael Christopher McCallum, a son, a father, a husband, a fiancé, and a victim of murder. Michael Christopher McCallum, who went by his middle name Chris, was born November 17, 1978. Most of Chris's life was spent living in California, where he enjoyed things like martial arts. His early life did have some troubles. His father and mother had a difficult divorce that left him committed to never doing the same to his own children. In 2008, one of Chris's friends introduced him to a girl named Patricia, who grew up around the L.A. area. She was a bit younger, born in 1986, but the two hit it off. Trisha had previously been married after getting pregnant in high school, and she too had challenging formative years due to divorce. After dropping out and getting married, it didn't take long for the young couple to realize they were not meant to be, and she became a young single mother. Trisha was thrilled when she met Chris, who not only loved her, but was loving and supportive of her young son. 
After just 10 months together, the couple was married in July of 2009 on a boat in Newport Harbor in Orange County. When they wed, the pair was already six months pregnant with their first child together, a daughter who was eventually named Cora Elizabeth Leah. Friends and family describe Chris as a devoted father and husband. Chris immediately stepped in as father to Trisha's son from her previous marriage without any hesitation. Her son called Chris dad. Chris desperately wanted to give them the life everyone wants, one of comfort, love, and acceptance. Though their love was strong and they were so happy to start a family together, money was an issue right off the bat. Neither of them had a college education and finding a good paying job in California was a challenge for both of them. Because of this, they jumped on the opportunity to move into a house that Chris's grandmother owned in Medford, Oregon. They would live there rent-free and attempt to find jobs. Medford, Oregon is in the southwestern portion of the state. It's one of the very last Oregon pit stops we usually make on our road trips to California. The I-5, or Interstate 5, cuts right through the city, making it an easy stop to grab gas and load up on snacks. This part of Oregon is pretty lush and forested. Like where we live in Portland, it's easy to get to the forest to do a remote hike, head west to the coastline, or stay put and enjoy the art and music the city has to offer. They also have the convenience of being able to pop down to California, which is less than an hour away. So what I'm saying is, even though they were taking advantage of Chris's family's offer to stay rent-free, this is not a bad place for a young family to end up. Over time, Trisha and Chris discussed their options for the future, and one thing that kept coming up was the Army. Since Trisha was younger than Chris, she signed up to be a medic in the Army. When she was accepted, the family packed up and moved to San Antonio for her basic training. Unfortunately, not long after they arrived, Trisha hurt her foot during boot camp, which made it hard for her to run, and she was discharged, blowing up their plans to help with college and career training. There were some major marriage difficulties while in San Antonio in 2011, and Trisha decided she wanted to break things off with Chris. This split was believed to be due to problems after Trisha had an affair with someone in the Army. She ended up taking the kids and moving back to Oregon and leaving Chris behind. He was distraught and told his father he wanted nothing more than to have his kids back, but he was stuck paying the lease on their home in San Antonio, Texas. Once the lease was up, he decided to move back to Medford to be near his kids again and potentially win her back. The couple didn't reconcile when he first moved back. Instead, they both began dating other people. Chris worked multiple jobs to support himself, Trisha, and their children. He was known to have at least two jobs at any given time. His most recent jobs were working as a cab driver, a call center service rep, and a part-time bartender. Chris paid a ton in child support. He had visitation with his children, and he was still very much in Trisha's life. Chris, now 34, and Trisha, 26, decided to give their marriage another try. On September 7, 2012, Chris moved back in with his family in Medford, Oregon, to raise their children, who were now aged 3 and 8. But that reunion wouldn't last long. Soon, it would turn deadly. On November 19, 2012, Trisha McCallum called police to tell them that her husband was missing and she wanted to file a report. She was eager to tell them everything she knew to get them to help locate him. According to Trisha, Chris went missing from their campsite Friday, November 16th. She said the whole family, including her, Chris, and their two children, went camping. 
Now, mind you, this is an Oregon November, which is incredibly cold and rainy. And as we would expect, she got cold and decided to take the two children home and leave her husband behind. Now, Chris loved camping, and he wanted to spend his birthday weekend doing one of his favorite hobbies. Trisha left Chris at the campsite with a tent, a sleeping bag, food, water, his wallet, his cell phone, and her 40 caliber handgun with two full magazines of ammunition. When she returned to the campsite around 10 a.m. the next day to pick him up, everything was packed up and Chris was gone. A deputy by the name of Biddle contacted two of Chris's employers and neither had heard from him. He also contacted several members of his family and a few friends to confirm that no one had heard from him or seen him. Deputy Biddle did learn from some of his conversations that Chris had been known to disappear when he was frustrated or needed to spend some time alone. That same evening, another deputy, Denton, went to the campsite area, but it was so dark and all he could do was confirm that Chris was not camping there. The next day, November 20th, several Medford officers followed Trisha's detailed directions to the Applegate campsite near the Oregon and California border to look for signs of Chris McCallum. Immediately, they noticed some odd things around the site. Metal tent stakes were strewn on the ground, and a tent pole and some stakes were in the fire pit. As one investigator starts to walk around the perimeter of the site, he sees what appears to be a tarp or tent rolled up on itself, hanging over the edge of a steep embankment, or what you could call a cliff. It appeared to be much heavier than just a tarp or tent. Something was definitely wrapped up inside. He made his way down the embankment to get a better look and carefully moved some of the material. He immediately found two bullet casings and dried blood, which had him convinced that there was a body wrapped up inside. Go check out the picture on the blog. It definitely looks like the shape of a body. The investigator climbs back up the embankment to report to the team what he's found. Not only did he discover a potential body, but the team realizes there's going to be some difficulty not only retrieving it, but it just so happens to be over the border into Siskiyou County, California. The Siskiyou County Sheriff's Office needed to be contacted ASAP. After doing so, officers from Wairika planned to travel up to take over for the Oregon team since it was in their jurisdiction. Not only did they decide they needed a warrant to fully open the tent, but darkness was fast approaching, so they would need to wait until the next day to retrieve the tent and open it up to see what was inside. That evening, the Siskiyou officers contacted Trisha McCallum to interview her. They go to her home and sit down, and what she tells them is a story that's quite a bit different from the original one that she told the Medford police. Again, she mentioned that Chris loved camping, no matter the weather, but that was about the only part of the story that remained the same. In this version, Trisha introduces a new person to the narrative, and this is the first time she's brought this person up to police. She explained that she, Chris, and her stepsister, Amber Lubers, had gone camping. Side note so you have some context, Amber Lubers' mother had been married to Trisha McCallum's father for over 20 years. So while they aren't blood-related, they're pretty much sisters, and in addition, they're basically best friends. According to Trisha's current story, on Friday, November 16th, she and Chris ran a few errands, picked up Amber, and then the three of them stopped at the grocery store on the way to the campsite. Trisha had bought food and a bottle of alcohol for each of them. They then drive to the site and arrive around 2 p.m. After setting up camp, they walk to a nearby waterfall, take some photos, and then return to the campsite where they eat a meal of sandwiches and start drinking in the tent to keep warm as the temperature drops. 
it was very cold. So Trisha and Amber decided to leave and head back to Medford. Again, she leaves Chris with the camping gear, her handgun, and the magazine clip, this time noting that it was for protection, and then they drove home to Medford. They stop and pick up Jack in the Box and return home to watch the movie 27 Dresses. Then the next morning, they get up around 5 a.m. to head back to the campsite where they discover Chris is gone and so is all the gear. When he hadn't arrived home the next couple of days and didn't arrive to work on Monday, she called the police to alert them. At this time, police decide to hold back the information about their recent discovery of the tent, and they want to wait until they know what's inside before they tell Trisha about it. Their next step is to corroborate Trisha's story with her stepsister, Amber. Amber's story is exactly the same as Trisha's. They got cold, they packed up, they left Chris alone with the gun, got Jack in the box, watched a movie, and went back the next day and discovered he wasn't there. They didn't panic at first, but by Monday, Trisha was really worried, so she called to report him missing. By this time, progress was being made at the crime scene. Not only were the tent poles discovered in the fire pit, but there were several shell casings around the campsite. Some were old and some were fresh, and they happened to be the exact same caliber as Trisha's gun she left with Chris. More importantly, they had also retrieved the tent from 40 feet below, and it was very clear there was something or someone wrapped inside. The bundle was taken to the medical examiner to be unwrapped, which leads us to believe that they were very confident they would find a body inside, because typically they wouldn't do that. I have never heard of a case where they just sent a whole package of a person wrapped up to a medical examiner. Now, it could be because they couldn't be on site, because I've definitely seen cases where... Yeah, or maybe they needed to document how it was wrapped up perhaps, before yeah, opening take photos it. and everything. And since they're out in the middle of nowhere... Things are wet. It's cold. Yeah. It might have been just that'd be like sending route. a suitcase that you found, and it's like there's no body in here, guys. There's just clothes. Yeah, well, that would be very embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> but I think they they were pretty positive with all the blood. Yeah. when you see the photo, Oof. yeah, it's yeah. Very I would obvious. assume that it was like there were there was something to do with how it was wrapped up that they wanted to preserve and document to make sure they had everything, everything for the case, yeah. fingerprints and stuff. When the medical examiner removes the tent, they find a bloody blue sleeping bag, and inside are the remains of Chris McCallum. He had been shot by nine bullets. Since he was inside of his sleeping bag, the medical examiner was confident that he had been asleep when he was shot repeatedly. Chris's spinal cord had been severed, and he had two bullets in his heart. Either of these injuries would have caused his death. Chris's case had moved from a missing person to homicide, and at this point in the investigation, both police departments are working on the case from two different angles. One possible scenario is it's the same assailant that struck a month prior. A man named Huey Hewson, a Medford cab driver for Valley Cab, was murdered and dumped in a field. Huey had picked up a fare at Howie's in downtown Medford. His dispatcher tried to contact him several times after he picked up the fare, but was unable to speak with him, so she eventually notified police. Later that night, Huey's cab was located downtown and the interior was covered in blood. Police were pretty certain Huey had been gravely injured, likely by someone who was local and knew the area well, as his cab was abandoned in an unusual area that's a bit run down and not a place you would want to be alone late at night. The next morning, Huey's body was discovered in a field near Hilo Drive. Huey had been shot several times. The killer had taken the car, Huey's money, and took off. 
The bar that Huey had last stopped at did have surveillance, and in the video, there was a white male, but he was never identified. They had been on the case for over a month with no leads, and now another Medford cab driver was dead from multiple gunshot wounds. Even more suspicious, like Chris, Huey had been murdered on his birthday. The Medford police continued to investigate this possible lead while keeping the Siskiyou County police informed. That is a very creepy coincidence. It really is. So Huey was killed on his birthday. Chris, we're not totally sure because the medical examiner couldn't say exactly the time frame that he was killed, but it was his birthday weekend. Weekend, yeah. So, so you can infer frame. that information. Has has that been something? I feel like I've heard of that before that um, with serial killers, they've looked at that before as like, oh, I think it was um, Son of Sam. Well, any, that they any serial at... killer could have their own MO and that could easily be one of them. Yeah. I think there was that other Zodiac killer and it turned out that the, that it was like on their, their birth month. It was the month, sign, yeah. But it was, I think it was completely coincidental. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's, so that I'm one is, curious yeah, that's if bizarre. that's But case, imagine but that's if so... a killer had a job at, say, the DMV or yeah. something, like you would have access to birthday information. So it'd be it, like, ooh, I'm feeling like going on a killing. Who's this got did a have the Medford weekend. police like almost excited, like, hey, maybe we can close both of these yeah, cases. Yeah, we've got a connection. Oof. Meanwhile, now that we have officially identified the body of Chris McCallum and his death is now deemed a homicide, police move to inform his wife, Trisha, and request to search her home. Trisha allows them to search the house without any complaints. One of the first things officers notice is that in the washer, there are two sleeping bags, and yet all the clothes are on the floor. One investigator found this to be really odd behavior, and he believed normal behavior would be to first wash the clothing before the sleeping bags. And if you're part of my household, you don't wash the sleeping bags. I, I'm trying to remember the last time even, I mean, unless I, you sleep like on the beach and it gets sandy I and gross. I can't even remember ever. Like I just yeah. buy new ones every couple oh of years. Even more foreboding, Chris's wallet was located in the master bedroom. Now, this was interesting because Trisha had told police in her earlier statement that Chris had his wallet with him when she left him at the campsite. When confronted about this, Trisha claimed that it was an innocent mistake. She had thought she left it with him, but her daughter had later found it in the car. During the search, police find a receipt in Trisha's purse for Jack in the Box. This does give her story some validity as the receipt backs up the timeline she gave to police in both of her earlier statements. While they're at the house, officers tell Trisha that they located the tent and her husband was found dead inside. The officer noted that her response to this information was pretty standard. She was very upset that her husband was dead. But the officer also caught something that gave him pause. She asked if he died due to an animal attack and then went on to say maybe he was attacked by an animal in the tent, causing him to get rolled up in it. Now, this was weird because they didn't give her the information on the tent being rolled up. Maybe that was inferred or maybe she knew more than she was saying. The investigation moved to her vehicle, but that search yielded no blood or gunshot residue. So at this point, despite a few little things here and there, Trisha isn't looking like she's hiding any information. As it's an open homicide investigation, police do take the McCullum's computer and cell phones for further investigation. You know what vibes I'm getting from this story? What are you getting? Jody Arias. Interesting. She got busted because of the washing machine, and it was her partner who was shot. I don't know. I'm just... That's interesting. I'm feeling some Arius vibes. 
the computer gives us some interesting findings. As I mentioned earlier, Chris and Trisha had previously separated, and during that time, they both dated other people. However, it seemed Trisha's dating life was a little spicier than Chris's. While apart, Chris met a woman named Samantha Adams. Their relationship was pretty serious. The two had met after Chris returned to Medford, and by February 29th of 2012, Samantha had proposed to Chris. She said to him that when he was ready, she was ready to be his wife. Now, while they were very much in love, a few months later, Samantha broke off their engagement because she thought Chris needed to resolve things with Trisha. Now, that makes sense because he wasn't yet divorced. So he was in this weird limbo with his ex-wife and she knew how important his kids were for him. So he was just really unhappy not living with his children. So I think Samantha could see... Like, this is going to forever be a problem, so I need to get in front of it by, like, saying, go deal with it. But her worries were validated because he did ultimately go back to be with Trisha for the sake of his children. Now, Trisha dated, too, and she had quite the internet history. While she was apart from Chris, she was frequenting dating and fetish websites like Sugar Daddy. Police found that she was seeking a specific kind of relationship where she was the submissive in a BDSM relationship. It was on the Sugar Daddy website that she met a man named Jeremiah Hill. So now police have yet another scenario to investigate. Is Chris dead because Trisha and her boyfriend wanted him out of the way? They learned from both the computer and the interviews with Jeremiah Hill that even though Chris broke things off with Samantha, it seemed Trisha may have kept her relationship with Jeremiah. The pair were in a dominant submissive BDSM relationship where Jeremiah would tie her up or bind Trisha during sex. He would also have her wear a dog collar when they were together. This was something that she actually told Chris about prior to getting back together with him, and he hated it. He felt it was really disrespectful to her, and he absolutely did not want his children seeing her wearing that collar. I feel like people in BDSM I don't think it is demeaning, right? Like, this is just a outward display of being yeah, it's a submissive. Yeah, it's a sexual expression. Like, what is demeaning is him yucking her yum. If and that's I, something that's I agree. fulfilling to her. I definitely agree, but I there, think he has a point. You wouldn't want your children Oh, definitely. I mean, that. that's anything sexual. You should. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's something that seems kinky and outrageous to you or if it's deemed vanilla in your eyes. Either way, your kids shouldn't know about your sex life. That's like doy. But for him to be like putting his judgment on it when she's finding a fulfillment in that, if that's what she was finding. And there can be parts of it that the demeaning part, and I'm not an expert by any means, but it's like. That's what she was looking for? Yeah, the demeaning part is part of the arousal. It can be the same way like being dominant can be arousing to someone. It's like. You know, if when someone's think, like, oh, I want a little spanking. I okay, is that demeaning? Side of but things was probably arousing. more jealousy. Oh, and for sure. He if wanted to be back and she here, she's trying all these things. You know, she married young. She had two yeah. babies. She's probably trying all the things she's always wondered about. Yeah. And if he wasn't um, exploring things sexually and then she's having this not really affair, but out of marriage relationship and it's doing things that he never would dream of definitely there could be jealousy not only is this person with your wife but maybe fulfilling things for her that you couldn't yeah that would be hard 
So despite all of that, Trisha had told police that she had been working on her relationship with Chris and he moved back in with her and the kids on September 7th. The pair were working through many issues, which did mean they had a lot of arguments, but she was adamant that their fights never got physical. But she did break things off with Jeremiah when he moved back in. And yet it seemed like that may not have been the case because the search history of the websites overlapped with her reconciliation. So I think she was still talking to Jeremiah. Maybe they did break off their sexual relationship, Mm -hmm. but we can't say for sure. Well, and also, like you said, her getting married young, once she explored that, maybe the thrill of being like dating online in a way that she had never experienced, maybe that was hard for her to step away from. Now, Jeremiah was around a lot. And, you know, Chris was there seeing his kids Jeremiah actually told police that he was witness to a fight between Chris and Trisha, and it was one that police were very interested in. So Jeremiah heard them fighting and Chris left the house and Trisha turned to Jeremiah and said, quote, things would be better off without Chris around. Now, the police were like, are those the exact words that Trisha used? And he said, I actually believe she said dead. She went on to tell him that he probably knew people that could help get rid of Chris, basically propositioning him to off her husband. She also claimed that Chris had a life insurance policy insinuating that they could benefit from it. Jeremiah did clarify to police that he never asked anyone to get rid of Chris for Trisha. This was just, you know, going back through this conversation they had. Hill's testimony offered a lot of information to police. Not only was Trisha talking about a hypothetical situation where Chris was out of the picture, she claimed he was forcing himself back into her life under threat of pulling the child support he pays, which would basically leave her homeless. So in her eyes, the only reason she and Chris were back together was so that he could help pay her rent and she could go back to school to get a better job. And even though Jeremiah Hill was comfortable being in a position of power and was in a relationship with Chris's wife, police ruled Hill out as a suspect or an accomplice to Chris's murder. He was confirmed to have been working from 5 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. the night that Chris was potentially murdered, and he had no transportation to be able to leave the Medford area unnoticed because it was like, I think, an hour drive or so. So you would need to have a vehicle or someone willing to take you but that is a little foggy and we'll get into that a little bit more this left two other people police needed to put under a microscope trisha mccallum and amber lubers we'll get back to the case after the short break from our sponsors Now that the focus was on Trisha McCollum, the discrepancies in her stories were becoming more of a red flag. First, she claimed she was at the campsite with Chris and her children. Then she claimed she was there with her stepsister and Chris. Police decide to take a look at the only surveillance camera in the area. Basically, this camera is pointed at the main road near the campsite, and it would catch any traffic going to or from the area. So basically, if you're there, you would have your car seen. And police mentioned that during the investigation, all the times they went back and forth, they never saw another car on this road. So it would have been very easy to spot a car in the surveillance video. And they found no car went back the morning that she claimed she went to pick Chris up from the campsite. 
Around this time, Medford police are finding no links between Chris's murder and the other cab driver's murder in the area. It seems like it was just a coincidence that they were both cab drivers shot to death on their birthday. So they are officially back down to a single scenario that Trisha McCallum likely had involvement in her husband's murder. And if she was involved, that means her stepsister Amber Lubers probably was too. On December 7, 2012, Trisha McCallum and Amber Lubers were both arrested. Police decide to focus their interview attention on Amber because she seems fragile, which is a good indication that someone might talk. She came off as shy, timid, and someone who you might deem a follower. And because of that, they knew she could be a huge asset in their investigation. Police decide to offer Amber immunity. Now, this is in return for information on Trisha. The terms are pretty good. She would be pleading guilty for an accessory to murder after the fact, which carries a sentence of about two years. I think it's like three years max. So they tell her the alternative is you don't agree to this. We're going to file charges for first degree murder against you. And, you know, she's kind of scared, but they flat out say we clearly have enough to file those charges. You're here. You're in this room with me. We were planning on going camping. It was for his birthday. Mm-hmm. He really did want to go. Um, he was really excited. Obviously, we're both terrified. Uh-huh. Terrified of getting caught. Um, we were trying to think of alibis and stuff like that. And I kept mentioning my kids and what was going to happen to them. Water. I was I was worried about them being motherless. Mm-hmm. No. The only reason why I couldn't like why I couldn't do it. But after I was already done, I kind of felt almost obligated. Why did you feel obligated? I was there. It was there when it happened, so... I, I felt obligated to get this help, get rid of it. How come you felt obligated? Because I, I was there. I was... I was afraid of what happened to them. Amber eventually accepts the terms and tells detectives that she did not kill Chris, but she couldn't speak between all of her sobs, so police pointedly ask, did Trisha kill Chris? And she nods and eventually squeaks out a yes. Amber's finally able to pull herself together enough to speak to the details and says that Trisha shot Chris in the tent. But that was a backup plan. Amber starts her story way back in September, the same month that Patricia and Chris reconcile and Chris moves back in. She goes on to say that while she and Trisha are sitting and talking at a family member's house, Trisha looks at her and says she wants to kill her husband and make it look like an accident. Amber is taken taken aback at first, but then she goes on to tell her about a remote campsite in Applegate that she knows of. The first plan, or plan A, was to get Chris drunk and push him off the edge of a nearby cliff at the campsite and say it was an accident. They initially try to kick off plan A in September, a month before the camping trip where Chris was eventually murdered. The three of them planned a trip to the campsite and Amber went ahead of time to set up the camp and wait for them. Chris ended up having to work late that night, so he and Trisha never arrived and the plan was abandoned. 
they decide to give it another try and the three of them go camping in November. This is at the exact same campsite. The trio sets up camp and then goes on a walk taking pictures all around the site. And these photos are so eerie. So they're up in the blog and you can see them. And it is just so sad because he looks so happy. Mm. He looks like, oh, I'm back together with my wife. Things are going great. Without realizing they're doing, what is that, reconnaissance work? Yeah, planning behind his back. He doesn't know later that day he's going to get shot to death. Like it is so utterly sad. So after they take these photos, Trisha approaches Amber with plan B. Now, it's still to make his death look like an accident. Trisha devises this plan for the three of them to go across the Applegate River. For this, they would have to convince Chris to go first, and he would tie a rope around his waist. They would then tell him to to go across, get all the way there, and then each of them would follow suit, you know, wrapping the rope around their waist and walking across for safety reasons, right? But what they actually plan to do is pull the rope when he's halfway across so that he falls in the water and freezes to death. So they end up getting down to the river and they are able to convince Chris to put this rope around his waist and walk across, but the plan failed. Trisha pulls the rope and he's knocked off balance, but he doesn't fall into the water. So while he's pissed that they nearly made him fall over, he doesn't suspect that there's this plot to kill him. First off, these plots are like Dollar Tree Bond villains. I know. I mean, the first one makes sense. Yeah. There's why wouldn't you just do that? Be like, that's yeah, very go get lovely. Drunk and tell us a story and you can slip. But but tie the rope. I mean, that so is... with the rope, he realized that they had pulled on it. I don't think he thought it was on purpose. Oh, OK. Nobody. Nobody like, got just, into it's detail. It's just a goof. But he was just like, oh, man, I could have fallen into the water and that would have hey, sucked. Guys, don't mess with the rope. But he's not thinking this person I love and this sister right. that I've basically had for years are planning my death. No, I don't think that crosses mine. So the three go back to the tent and they're drinking and talking. Now, the women kept their own drinking to a minimum. Amber actually said that they had been diluting their own alcohol bottles so that as they were drinking, it was mostly water, but they kept filling Chris's cup up. So he's getting, you know, drunker and drunker. And eventually he falls asleep. And all the while, while they're in this tent and he's falling asleep, the the girls are writing on a cell phone back and forth and erasing what they're writing so that it's not keeping track of it. And they're basically deciding, well, what's the next move? So since neither accidental plan worked out, a backup plan was initiated. Amber and Trisha go and they meet in the parked car so that they can talk without worry that they're going to wake Chris up. Amber attempts to convince Trisha to abandon the plan. It's getting way too real now. And she says Trisha looks at her and says, quote, he is not coming home with me. So after that, Amber claims Trisha decided to just get the gun and shoot Chris. So she goes to the trunk, she gets the gun, she goes to the tent, and she unloads the entire magazine into Chris, walks out of the tent, asks Amber to give her the other magazine a bullet, goes back in the tent, and does it again. Shoots the entire, all of the bullets she has in the gun. She fired over 20 times. And with all these plans, you would think, I mean, obviously there's a lot of rage built up, but you would think, let him pass out being drunk, and drag him to the cliffside and just, and just roll him and over. And it could still be an accident. And then mess up the ground or something and go, oh, my God, he was drunk and pretending to do a show yeah. and fell over the side instead of, like, uh, attention drawing with 20 shots. 
Now, one thing we don't know is if he awoke at any point in that. I like to think she killed him like yeah. right off the bat, and that that's especially not being the case. that drunk, right? It's pretty horrible to. You're saying the rage buildup, and I keep thinking like, what rage? What did this man do other than try to be with her? I think anger at her life. Yeah, like because of you, I got knocked up, and you know. I didn't get to go through the army and I didn't get to live a free life. Blaming things on him. Yeah, so he was the tangible outcome of the life that left her unfulfilled. So after she murdered him, she goes back to the car and gets Amber to help her. And they take the poles out of the tent. They roll the tent up with Chris still inside and they try to pull him to the car so that they can put him in the trunk and drive him elsewhere. But he was too heavy. So that's when they decided to just drag him to the edge of the cliff and push him over. Now, Amber says after that, she believed Trisha took the gun and got rid of it under the waterfall, like threw it into the water underneath the waterfall. Now, as Amber's telling the story, Trisha still refuses to talk to police, but Amber's testimony is more than enough for the DA. She goes on to testify in a preliminary hearing, and it shocks the entire family. I mean, for two months, Trisha plotted to kill her husband with her stepsister, and the stepsister didn't try to stop her until she claims at the very end. And while everyone around them is shocked at what happened and that Trisha would do that and that Amber would actually testify against her, it seemed like Trisha was actually prepared for Amber to squeal on her because hidden among the several dating websites she frequented throughout November, there was a search history item on November 23rd. So that's just days after the murder. And it is, quote, how to mark a snitch or burn mark on a face to mark a snitch. So it's like she saw it coming. Amber ends up going to trial and pleading guilty to accessory to murder after the fact in 2013. She went to prison for 16 months, but thanks to her good behavior, she was let out after only serving eight months. And when she got out, Trisha was still waiting her trial. I think she went into trial that very month. <sighs> so she had already gone in, done her time, come out. See and now you later. Which is even more damning because if I'm on the jury... And you're coming out of your sentence. So still sticking so you've not only uh, been found guilty or had enough evidence to prove your guilt to where you would take a plea deal. So you had that against you. And now you've served your time. You're not getting any benefit from this. Exactly. Lock her up, I say. In November of 2013, Trisha McCallum went to trial for the first degree murder of her husband. The case appeared to be pretty solid with an eyewitness who had already done time for her part, even though most would say she probably should have done more. She still did it. Her story did not change. But defense focused on a number of things, and primarily they were trying to cast a doubt by targeting the witness testimony. So it was not only Amber, it was also Jeremiah. Their goal was basically like, let's make them mess up let's make them change their story and make them look bad because then they could probably get it thrown out the first time we see this is when amber claims that the gun and the clips were thrown into the nearby waterfall area so the defense is poking holes in this because they actually searched that area pretty thoroughly and weren't able to ever find a weapon or the magazines so this is like a twofold argument here one you're poking holes in her testimony and making her look bad like maybe she was lying and two it is harder to win a murder case when you don't have a weapon 
So they were like, oh, maybe this will get us a win here. Yeah. It also worked in their favor that the medical examiner couldn't be super clear on the time of death. They couldn't prove the exact date or time frame, which gave a bit of room for Trisha's lawyers to claim that the shooting happened after her and Amber left the campsite and maybe that someone else had done it. There was also no official evidence to support that Trisha had committed this murder. There were no traces of blood, no gun, no fibers found on her or in her house or her car. The case simply relied on testimony. Now, that may be true. However, Trisha's computer and cell phone held secrets like Gretchen Wiener's hair, and that information could help fill some of those gaps that you're questioning in prosecution, like things, what's the motive, right? That's probably the one unclear thing for people. It's really easy when you can say, oh, you know, they had a bank account of a million dollars. It was money related. They kind of had a little bit of one, right? So we knew there were com there was conversations with Jeremiah that she was looking for a payout from insurance. He actually didn't have life insurance. There were some other payments she could have received that her and her daughter would have benefited from, but that wasn't super strong. So they actually read some texts in court to kind of help um, build their motive. So the prosecutor paraphrased texts like this one from Chris to Patricia, and it said, quote, are you going to live this marriage or not? You run into huge financial crisis. You begin to tell me you love me, except the day before I pay bills, you're with another guy. So the prosecution stated that this showed motive for Chris's murder. They claimed Trisha was experiencing financial problems and needed money. But Chris basically told her to get this money, you have to have me too. So while this is a little bit more of a weak motive, it's still a motive. I know motives are helpful in murder cases, but you don't always have them. You don't always have them. And also people have killed for the pettiest things. I mean, you could look and say she was in a more fulfilling or happier relationship with this new guy. And that alone is motive. Is motive to get him out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. And I think it is also lining up from what Amber's saying, what yeah. Jeremiah's saying, and then the text from Chris. So at least it's a clear mm -hmm. storyline. It's like you can be fed up. That's a motive. So while the defense team called no witnesses to the stand, prosecution called both Amber Lubers and Jeremiah Hill. Jeremiah told the court about his and Trisha's BDSM lifestyle and everything he had told police that she said about trying to solicit help murdering her husband. Amber went back through all of the testimony she had previously given about what happened the night of Chris's murder. The case overall really hinged on the validity of the stepsister, Amber Lubers. This was very damaging eyewitness testimony. Now, like I said before, the defense team spent the majority of the time focused on picking apart witness testimony. The goal being to make Amber in particular appear to be unreliable. If the jury didn't buy her account of that night, the prosecution wouldn't have a case and it would result in an acquittal. But just in case, they also pointed fingers at Jeremiah Hill, who had inconsistencies in his testimony. Now, this was in regards to how him and Trisha broke up. There were questions here because one story was they didn't break up. Another one was he broke it off because he wanted to respect her children. And another was she broke it off because she just didn't want to be with anyone. But they also suggested that police should have considered him a suspect. He was off work just after 10 p.m. So that means he could have had enough time to get to the campsite and do it. But investigators were like, no, he has an alibi. It checks out he has no car. 
But defense, and I will give them this one, they were like, you didn't even bother to check his phone records. Oh, so how yeah, can that be thorough? You need to totally exclude a suspect by right. doing you all of just, those things. Oh, he doesn't have a car. Okay, he couldn't have done it. Because not only does that remove them without a doubt, it makes the other case stronger. Well, also, he could have been an accessory. He could have helped yeah. her plan it and not not been there at all. Yeah. So I do agree with them on that point. If all of that scrambling wasn't enough, the defense also went on to claim that Chris and Trisha had a BDSM relationship as well. But there was no evidence of that. And I think that is just so distasteful and rude to bring that up in front of his family in court if you can't even back it up. And also, I get that this was, I mean, not 10 years ago, but close to. And it's like there are efforts being made for people being more just not open-minded but just accepting and sure and it's just like for people to for whatever reason equate that type of relationship to violence and murder mm -hmm. only speaks to that person's lack of knowledge of it because it's like yeah until you i mean and there are people that seek out extreme things that that do get violent but to say like he tied her up so he must have wanted to kill someone it's like it's so common and healthy and normal and it's just i i hate when anything like that is used but even against more, someone like, when it doesn't matter when that's not why? what that is what did that help you do you're, you're trying to paint him like some sort of yeah, bad you're guy a bad that person that's the reason she lost it or something like they right. didn't even like think that thought through but the fact that his parents were sitting there having yeah. just lost their son and you're bringing that up with no evidence right is so gross not only that but imagine what that does which i've never really thought about this before but when things like that are brought up, especially when it's prosecution and they're like, look how disgusting and awful this is and this must have been this person. Do you know the percentage of that jury that has at least tried that, if not does it regularly? So are you like... So what am I supposed yeah. to... If I'm sitting there and that's something I'm into, am I a bad person? Do I put? Do I say that they're guilty because that's bad? Like, yeah. you're tainting your own case by bringing up this nonsense that doesn't pertain to it at all. Yeah, it just, I think they were starting to realize they were losing footing yeah. and just looking for yeah, anything. grasping at straws for sure. So even though the defense seemed to have multiple angles covered, it appeared that Amber was perceived as a valid witness. She not only did her time and her for her part of the crime, but her story made sense to the jury. Roughly a month later, on December 16th, 2013, after only two hours of deliberation, the jury came back to court with a verdict. Trisha McCallum was guilty of first-degree murder, and she was shocked by this. She absolutely thought she was going to be innocent. After the initial conviction, Trisha appealed. Her legal team cited that the deal that Amber got from the police was not valid. They argued that they didn't follow California law. The details of the appeal stated that the court prejudicially erred in, quote, failing to instruct the jury on the limits of accomplice testimony while, one, failing to instruct the jury on the limits of accomplice testimony while misinstructing the jury that a single witness can prove any fact, and two, failing to instruct the jury that they must view her unrecorded out-of-court statements tending to show her guilt with caution. So basically, I interpret this as they neglected to remind the jury that Amber also committed this crime with Trisha and was given a deal. So they should take her testimony with a grain of salt. 
obviously it would be in her best interest to salvage herself and throw her stepsister under Mm -hmm. the bus. The appeals judge felt the court did adequately instruct the jury on this. So in January of 2015, just over two years after that guilty verdict, Trisha finally went to court for sentencing. Now, she still claims she was innocent. In fact, by now she's saying, I'm the victim. Uh, But no, she was charged with murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and corporal injury to a spouse. Trisha was sentenced for roughly 50 years to life. Now, this breaks down to about 25 for inflicting bodily injury and 25 for discharge of a firearm causing great bodily injury or death. And then she also received a 10-year term for causing corporal injury to a spouse. Not only that, she was ordered to pay $27,000 in restitution to Chris's family. Trisha McCallum is currently 35 years old and resides in the California Institution for Women. She's eligible for parole in 2062 when she's 76 years old. But since California offers the elderly parole program, she'll probably have an option for parole at around age 60. Trisha's mother, Sarah, has custody of her son from her previous marriage and her daughter with Chris. What do you think? I think it's interesting with Amber that people were maybe upset that she got the deal or that she didn't report it sooner. But not knowing the dynamic of that relationship or how those people are, you know, I've definitely said stuff where it's like, oh, I could just kill that person or whatever. Not thinking it's real. If I were in Amber's shoes... I would be like, okay, we really need to talk about like the hatred you have for this guy. And maybe it seemed fun to talk it out and like, oh, this feels naughty and dangerous. Thinking it wouldn't happen. Exactly. Like, this is my sister. Of course, she's not capable of killing someone. And then when you're in that moment and then she pulls out a gun, it's like, wait, I can. And who knows? And maybe she's a monster that went on her own and was like, give me a turn, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So... I definitely, in hearing the story, lean more towards the first part of, like, she just didn't think it was going to get that real. I think you have a really good point. Um, First of all, I do think she should have done the whole 16 months. I think that would have helped the family feel like she did her time. But she's the perfect example of why we do plea deals Mm -hmm. because they knew she wasn't the mastermind. Right. She... I very she was the submissive in this relationship. Ooh, yes. She was definitely following her sister. And yeah. I don't know, I think she was actually a year older, but I think her sister was the more dominant personality and it probably did just kind of funny this can't be real and then it got out of hand and maybe that's when she finally did step in, but yeah, I think it would have been easier for everyone to accept if she did the full time, but at the same time because of her this was a yeah. open and shut case. Yeah. And that'd be hard too of when do you call the cops? Yeah. You know, if you made an offhand comment about someone, I wouldn't think you'd do anything. So I wouldn't call anyone. And then maybe it gets more serious, but it's like she's just stressed or she's worried about money or she just hates this guy. Yeah. What do I tell the cops? I mean, you can't get You know, all these stories we do, you can't get cops to come if someone's like actively beating you. I think for me, it would have been real when we actually get to the campsite, though. Like for her to go there first and wait for them made me wonder if she was a little bit more in on it than she says. 
Yeah, um, which is totally possible. Maybe she was like, hell yeah, I get to kill somebody. Yeah, I mean, you have no she, idea. It's so hard to say, yeah. but um, we do have a clip of her mm. interrogation, and I think it'd be cool if Josh could put that in. I, I put it in the script, but hopefully we can, because you can get a feel for how just she was a hot mess. Mm. You could tell immediate guilt. She was guilty, uh, but I talked to someone about this case. I think they said uh, they knew someone who is in jail with her or something, and they oh. didn't think there was regret. But I, I don't know. She looks very genuinely regretful. Right. But, you know, people surprise us every day. Yeah. People hide things. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no telling. And also, and I kept forgetting how young she was. Um, 26 and Oh, sorry. What was the wife's name? Tiffany? Trisha. Trisha. I kept forgetting how young Trisha was, too. So when you said her age now, like, she's only a couple years younger than us. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and you've already done time. You've already been doing time yeah, for, she, like, six years. 27, I believe. I think I wrote that down. I and now you have your whole life ahead of you. Here you were so miserable because of your circumstances. And instead of doing something to take control and make a difference and figure out how to make it work for yourself, you had to take someone else's life which in turn cost you yours completely. So yeah, I don't get it. I, I, I get real sad and worked up about these cases because I just don't know how you get to that point where yeah. you're literally willing to marry someone and then you're willing to kill them. Mm -hmm. Like why not get a divorce and walk away? It's like, it's like those people who spiral and spiral because they think debt is the worst thing that yeah. can happen. And then it just gets worse yeah. and worse and worse. No, there are always worse things. Yeah. But to kill someone, to get them out of your life so you could either be the only parent or not have to, you know, not share custody right. or not have to deal with him anymore, it's just baffling to mm -hmm. me. It's the anger and the emotions that people just don't have in check. They don't have the tools to manage them. And so when you're angry at your life because you rolled your ankle and you can't be in the army and you couldn't get in school because you got pregnant and you, you know, when all of that adds up and you don't have the tools to process it you have to put it somewhere yeah. and she put it on him and so it just festered and became he be i'm sure in her eyes just became this monster of a person that she hated he represented everything that was wrong in her which life. is so sad. he just looks like the happiest sweetest person right literally do anything for his children like break himself working hour after hour it's so terrible yeah and it's and the not that there should ever be a murder that right is, even a shitty person had a point but to <laughs> but to be so upset about money and opportunity and all of those things and then kill the person who's bringing you your your only source of income it's that like, is like weird. that just shows how how much hate she had for him yeah you know it wasn't even worth a little bit of help with the bills which or... makes those photos of his last day even more creepy because yeah. she doesn't look like she's faking it. Yeah. They're kissing and hugging and laughing. And all the while, she is planning she's all like, the different ways she can soon. murder him. I can't wait for you to be dead, which will be soon. Like maybe she's happy because she's so delighted. That I bet that's it. I bet you're seeing him. He's like, we're getting our family back together. And she's like, this mother effer is not coming home with me. That's creepy. Incredibly. Also, would you rather have to spend 50 years in prison or watch 27 Dresses again?
Did you get the clue in there? <laughs> I'm really excited. No. A husband and a fiance. Oh. <gasps> oh. <laughs> On a boat in Newport Harbor. In, oh my God, my screen went out of. Motherfucker. <laughs> Neither of them had a college education and finding a good. Uh -huh. <laughs> a deputy by the name of Biddle contacted. Yes. There's a T in there. Yep. What? A, what? Deputy. The deputy. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah. I, I'm a local deputy. <laughs> deputy. 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 <laughs> a deputy by I the wish, name. I wish we had a really fancy setup that to play back. Sometimes we play that back. Oh yeah, I said deputy. Deputy. <laughs> I didn't even notice. Usually I notice. You I know? didn't even notice. <laughs> I don't never notice. I, done I said went, deputy. I done went to school to be deputy. 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 But it just so happens to be over the border into Siskiyou County, California. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The Siskiyou. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a bit different from the original one. She told the. Oh my God! It's like I've never spoken a word in my life. Oh my God! My sentence doesn't even make sense. He could have died due to either, and either of these injuries would have caused his death. <laughs> It's a, it's a little redundant. I think I must have rewrote it and didn't erase it all. Good um, day to you and to you. I wish a good day to you. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. In the news this morning. Good morning. Oh, I haven't said that part yet. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Here we go. It's getting good. Emily, come you on. Your, you have your porn tabs open, you little weirdo? <laughs> no, it's the goddamn uh, keyboard pops oh. up and then you can't. It the takes keyboard. up half the screen. Don't you mock my squeaks. I will. A man named Huey Hewson, a Medford cab driver for Valley Crab. What? <laughs> Have we gone into cartoon land now with Huey Houston who drove a crab? Ma'am. This part of SpongeBob Squarebean? Oh my God. <laughs> Huey Houston here, your local crab driver. Can we request our one of our artist friends to make a taxi crab, please? Yeah. Thank you. Come shell or high water, he'll pick you up. Oh. I'll pick you up if you're in a pinch. Oh my god, it's like I'm ruining my own story because I cannot tell it <laughs> to you. Me <laughs> His dispatcher He's His dispatcher oh. was a lobster. <laughs> My God. <laughs> That's a very creepy coincidence. Uh, super creepy. Oh, I'm sorry. We're actually recording. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, I was trying to have dialogue with you. Can you retake that? <laughs> I apologize. I forgot real quick what we were here for. <laughs> I might be asleep right now. <laughs> this one is real scary. I'm terrified. Oh, now I'm crazy. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. I can't hear things and I'm hearing things. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. 
check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.